Okay, today we're going to start the book of Haggai. Um, it fits in with uh, the book of Ezra. Ha Haggai is mentioned there in, in chapter 5, so that's why we're going back to Haggai. So let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the message that you give us through the prophet Haggai about how you wanted the Jews to, to rebuild your temple and they were uh, not interested in that and you had to really give them a kick to get them going and, and Lord that it's a, a good uh, reminder for us to um, not procrastinate, not to put off the things that you want us to do. And we just pray as we go through this that you'll impress that on our souls and and help us to uh, remember those things that, that do honor you and, and that glorify you. We ask you to bless our time now in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so in Haggai, we're going to start by reading verses 1 through 11. 1 through 11. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest. This is, this is what the Lord Almighty says. <clears throat> These people say, The time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Sorry, God. Uh, mm -hmm. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while the house lies in ruins? Now therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have so much and bring in little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you do not. You are not filled with drink. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages earns wages to put into a bag with holes. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the crops, and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. Okay, so <laughs> so originally after finishing Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, we were going to go into Esther. Um, all the commentaries that have Nehemiah in them also have Esther. They all kind of lump together because uh, historically Esther fits in between chapter 6 and 7 of Ezra. There's like a 60-year gap in there, and that's where the book of Esther fits historically. Um, but... In my own personal reading, I'd been going through the Minor Prophets, and I read Haggai, and it made so much more sense now because we've gone through the history of Ezra. I thought, well, let's cover it. It's a two-chapter book. It won't take too long, and then we'll go back to Esther. Um, but to make sense of it, let's, let's turn back to Ezra, chapter 4.
Ezra chapter 4. So we'll look at the historical background from Ezra. Uh, chapter 4, again, when um, the Jews returned to the land under King Cyrus of Persia, and they immediately build uh, an altar, and then they start building the temple. And they get the foundation laid and have this big celebration. And so then that brings us to chapter 4. Would someone like to read verses 4 and 5? Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from the building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Okay, so the surrounding nations did not want to see um, the Jews uh, building a big temple, getting established in Jerusalem. They wanted to keep them in subjection. And so they complained to Cyrus. Um, Cyrus was the one who sent them back to Jerusalem, but apparently they had enough uh, weight in, uh, in the capital that they were able to persuade him to basically issue a stop work order. Now, at this point, um, chapter 4, if you remember, it was a little bit confusing because chapter or verse 6 says, Now in the reign of Ahasuerus, well, that's the time of Nehemiah. So that's skipping at least 30 years into the future. What, uh, what Ezra is doing here is just giving additional examples of the opposition that they faced. So they skipped to Ahasuerus. That's the, during the time of Esther. And then verse 7, and in the days of Artaxerxes. Well, that's Artaxerxes is the king when Nehemiah returns. So most of chapter 4 is information about something that happens, you know, 60, 80 years in the future. It's, so he's kind of almost flash forward, I guess, not a flashback, but Ezra gives you an example here of. Um, of the opposition that the Jews faced in the land. But it doesn't fit historically here. So let's skip down, and someone like to read <coughs> verse 24, we're in Ezra 4, and then the first two verses of chapter 5. 4.24 through 5.2. Thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius came in Persia. I'm sorry, you said when? And then the first two of verses of chapter 5. Now Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the prophet, descended of Edom, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, son of Josadak, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. Okay, so God sent... Haggai and Zechariah. We, we're not going to study Zechariah because his it's longer. He has quite a bit longer. Yeah, it gets into a lot of prophecy of the future. Um, Haggai, Haggai, we can cover pretty quickly. So Haggai and Zechariah were sent, and and basically, as we'll see, it was Haggai that got him going again. You know, they they had gone until the second year of King Darius. Um, so this was. Uh, a 15-year gap from the time they stopped building the temple until they started again. So, 
God had to give them a kickstart to get them going again. Let's turn now to Haggai chapter 1. Okay, verse 1. So we, we just read in the second year of Darius, they started rebuilding. So in the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying. So this verse does a really good job of giving us the exact detail of who, what, where, and why, and how. Um, parallel, parallel to the book, chapter 5 of the other one. Yep. Four, well, 424, it says in the second year of King Darius, and then, yeah, chapter 5, it talks about Haggai being sent. So that's where it fits into the, the other book. So it says it's in the second year of Darius. Um, since the Jews did not have a king on their own throne to... to Say in this, you know, first year of Josiah or the third year of Hezekiah, they counted the years according to the Persian kings. So this is the second year of Darius. That means it's 520 BC. People know what that year was. It also says it's the first day of the sixth month. They still use their lunar calendar for the days and the months, and the sixth month corresponds to like late August, early September, because the first day, is, again, is the new moon. And in the middle of the month, you have the full moon. So, so this is a precise date. It's August 29th, 520 B.C. You know exactly the day. So, so this is when uh, the word of the Lord came to Haggai. Um, now, the commentaries did make a little bit of uh, comment on the fact that it was the first day. So this is, um, the Jews would celebrate the new moon. And let's go back to Numbers chapter 10. <coughs> Excuse me. Numbers chapter 10. Someone like to read verse... 10 for us. 10 10? Numbers 10 10. Also, at your times of rejoicing, your appointed festivals and new moon feasts, you are to sound the trumpets over your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, and they will be a memorial for you before your God. I am the Lord your God. Okay, so he's telling the priests when to sound the trumpets, and it includes the. Um, okay, the first days of your months are the new moons. So that's a day when they would sound the trumpet. And then let's turn to Numbers chapter 28. Numbers 28. Someone would like to read verse 11 for us. At the beginnings of your months, you shall offer a burnt offering to the Lord. Two bulls from the herd, one ram, seven male lambs, and a year old with black Okay, so there's a special offering on the first day of the month as well. And this would be in addition to the daily offering. And I suppose if the first day of the month was a Sabbath, so you'd have a special offering on the Sabbath, so you'd have you know, three special offerings all on the same day. Um, so one of the things I was looking to see 
um, like the Sabbath was a, a special day consecrated to the Lord. They could do no work. I was trying to find out if the first day of the month was the same way, and I couldn't, I did not find anything. So apparently it was, you know, they didn't have to stop work like they did on the Sabbath, but they did have a special celebration. And so what the commentators suggested was that this meant that Joshua, at least, and maybe also Zerubbabel, would be at the temple because it was a special day to celebrate. And so Nehemiah, or excuse me, not Nehemiah, but Haggai then would have them there to be able to tell them the word of the Lord. Um, and maybe have and maybe others would be there so we'd have a larger audience. But uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua specifically are mentioned um, here as being the recipients of God's message. Um, one other little point in as we went through Ezra and Nehemiah, it was Jeshua, the high priest, here in Haggai and also in Ze- um, Zechariah's Joshua, the high priest. Same person, just a little bit different spellings of the name. Okay, so that gives us the setting. Go, now going on to verses 2 through 4, we see the beginning of the message. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time is not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? So this begins the message... And this is, a re- this is a rebuke. An awful lot of the messages delivered by prophets were rebukes. Um, and one of the things that it says, it begins by saying, this people says. God doesn't say my people. He says this people. Um, so that fits in with the rebuke. So God wants his temple built. And what are the people saying? Well, not yet, not now, maybe maybe later. Um, so God knows what they're saying. God knows their hearts. He knows their excuses. He knows whether they really want to do his will or not, and whether it's a legitimate reason or whether it's a phony excuse or what it is. You know, he knows my heart that way. He knows all of our hearts that way. And so that's something that, I think we need to keep in mind, especially when we, we pray and go to God, um, it doesn't do any good to be phony in our prayers. <laughs> God God knows our hearts. Um, I always think of Hebrews where it talks about being basically stripped naked and laid bare before God. Um, he, he knows us. It's almost, uh, it's intimidating in a way. Um, he knows our motives and everything. So here he knows exactly what they're thinking and what they're saying. So going back to, you know, when they started to build a temple, they faced some opposition. Uh, They got a stop work order from Cyrus, the king of Persia. So that was, you know, that was a legitimate reason for stopping work. Now, five years later, Cyrus is no longer king, whether he dies or was killed, but um, Cambyses becomes the king of Persia. 
Now, we know from how our administration changes every four to eight years, you get a different administration and you get a complete change of heart about different things. Did they send a delegation to Cambyses and say, can we have permission to build a temple? No, it doesn't mention it. No initiative. Um, Cambyses reigned for eight years and then Darius took over the throne. So they had another opportunity to send a delegation to Darius and ask for permission to build a temple. And did they do anything? No. So basically for 15 years they showed no initiative whatsoever to go and get permission to they build a temple. They were building their own homes? Yes. You know, one of the things that struck me is we've got a situation today, um, you know, with uh, COVID when it first started, you know, we got all these decrees to say, okay, you can't meet because, you know, we don't know how serious this disease is. You have to shut your churches, shut your doors. And, and so, you know, we did that. And so there was a legitimate reason, I think, for not meeting for a period of time. And then we started finding out, well, you know, it's really not as bad as it seems to be. And, and the government was loosening up the rules so we could come back. But there's an awful lot of people that are just like the Jews. And it's like, oh, I, not yet, not, not now, maybe later. You know, they're just failing to come back to the church. They're not showing any initiative to get, to get back into church. So... And there was, you know, there was, by groups of people, appeals to the mandates as right. time went by. So it's an yeah. example that sometimes you use the system to, you know, right. um, you go through the system to right. try to do what you know is right. Or, uh -huh. um, yeah, there was a lot of folks <laughs> determined. To, you know, a lot of people just kept meeting despite the, mm -hmm. the government regulations. And there was a lot of pushback to get them eased up as soon as possible. Right. Yeah, and that but was good. I was good. even thinking of some legal appeals. Right, legal appeals and or, things. you know, even maybe one step short of actual legal, but there were letters and, you know, mm -hmm. this is important and, you know, yeah. please let us meet. Right. So the people here were saying, well, it's not time yet to rebuild the temple. And some of the commentaries... Uh, came up with a, a, a possible reason why they would say that. Um, if you remember, we had, through <clears throat> Jeremiah, a prophecy of the 70 years of captivity. Well, the original temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. So 70 years from that would be 516 B.C. And right now it was 520. So they had four years left. They're saying, okay, we don't, we don't have to build a temple for another, <laughs> you know. Um, and so I looked up 70 in, in the Bible, and nowhere does it specifically apply to the temple. It says, yeah, I think Daniel said that Jerusalem would be desolate for 70 years. And that's the closest I could find to anything applying uh, to the temple. Um, Jeremiah basically said, you'll be ruled over by Babylon for 70 years. So that goes from 606 to uh, 536. 
Um, and then we saw in Chronicles that the land rested for 70 years. But nothing specific about the temple. So it's an interesting idea that maybe, maybe that's what the people were saying, you know. Hey, 70 years. We don't, you know, we can, we can procrastinate another year or two. So, anyways, uh, God uses this message uh, here through Haggai to really to point out uh, the hypocrisy that, and the self-centeredness of the people. Because, you know, he says, it's, it, it is time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses. Well, this house lies desolate. So houses typically were built of some form of masonry. There are lots of limestone available. Um, and, and again, with the city of Jerusalem having been destroyed, you know, there was probably a lot of empty, abandoned houses, uh, rubble laying around, lots of block masonry available. So, you know, the houses would be uh, masonry. Um, but these houses that he's talking about here are paneled. So this, this is in a very expensive, luxurious house with wood paneling. Timber was not available in Jerusalem very much. This was all had to be imported. Um, so this indicates a very lavish, very self-indulgent type of a lifestyle. Let's turn to Jeremiah chapter 22. Jeremiah 22. Someone like to read verses 14 and 15 for us. He says, I will build myself a great palace with spacious upper rooms. So he makes large windows in it, panels it with cedar, and decorates it in red. Does it make you a king to have more and more cedar? Did not your father have food and drink? He did what was right and just, so all went well with him. Okay, so this is a message to Jehoiakim, who was one of the last kings of Israel. Uh, I think he was hauled off to Babylon. And so this is sarcastic. He's saying, so you think by having lots of cedar paneling that that's going to make you a great king? <laughs> uh, no, it doesn't. Uh, let's go back and look at Solomon's temple in First Kings chapter 6. Again, Solomon's temple is kind of the, the epitome of uh, construction. And we'll see what he did. 1 Kings chapter 6. Does someone like to read verses 14 through 18? So Solomon built the house of David. He lined the walls of the house on the inside with boards of cedar. From the floor of the house to the wall and to the ceiling, he covered them on the inside with wood. He covered the floor of the house with boards of cypress. He built 20 cubits from the rear of the house with boards of cedar from the floors to the walls, and he built this within an inner sanctuary as the most holy place. The house, that is, is the nave in front of the inner sanctuary was 40 cubits long. The cedar within the house was carved in the form of gourds and open flowers. All was cedar, no stone was seen. Okay. So the entire inner part, you had the 40 cubits was the outer 
holy place, and then the 20 cubits was the holy of holies in the back where the ark was. Um, the walls, the ceiling were all covered with cedar. The floor was covered with cypress, which I'm guessing is a harder wood. Cedar's pretty soft, so the floor was a harder wood. And it was all carved, and it was overlaid with gold. So this is... This is what God's house should look like. Uh, with the cedar, the panel walls, and the gold. Um, first, in First Kings, somebody's still there. I'd like to read chapter 7, verse 7 for us. He built a throne hall, the hall of justice, where he was to judge, and he covered it with cedar from floor to ceiling. Okay, so his throne room, Solomon's throne room, was covered with cedar. Now, it doesn't say it was covered with, overlaid with gold, but it was covered with cedar. So here we have the paneled houses. Um, so in Jerusalem, it would have been the, I guess what we've called the nobles, the people who were wealthy, had the money, the time to build these expensive homes, but they did not care about God's house. It lay desolate. And that's the problem. That was the attitude that, that God uh, resented here. Let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 7. We'll look at the example of David, which is exactly the opposite. 2 Samuel chapter 7, some likely verses 1 through 3. That's, that's good enough. So, so David was in a situation here where, you know, he was in a luxurious palace, walls covered with cedar, and his God had a tent. And he said, this is not right. <laughs> and he knew it wasn't right. He wanted to glorify God. He wanted to honor God and give God a better house than he had. Um, and as we know, um, God says, you're not going to build it. Your son will build it. But David did everything he could. He collected all the material, uh, drew up all the plans, organized the Levites and the priests. He had everything ready to go, except God said, you can't build it. So Solomon built it. But that shows David's love for God and for God's glory, which is so much different than what we see here in Haggai with the, with the people in Jerusalem. Okay, now going on to verses 5 and 6, back in Haggai chapter 1. Now therefore, this says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. So a lot of people including believers, I think, sometimes, think that if you just ignore God, he'll kind of leave you alone and let you live your life the way you want to live it. Uh, 
but that's not the case. This passage shows us that that's not the case. God says to Haggai, consider your ways. Think about your priorities. Think about your goals, your actions, your attitudes. And then think about the results that come from your actions. What are the consequences? What have you accomplished? What have you done? Um, What's your way of life look like? So God tells him to think about that, and then he tells him what's going on. He says, Here's, here are the results. He says, you work really hard to grow crops, but your hard harvests are meager. You eat, but you're never satisfied. It's like you're on a diet continually because <laughs> you don't have enough food. Um, and you, you certainly don't have enough to enjoy it, or you can't enjoy it. Um, then the New American Standard says, you know, you drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. <laughs> you don't even have enough wine to, to get drunk on. Um, not saying that that's a good thing to do, but it just shows how little they had here. Um, you don't have enough clothing to keep warm. And then finally, uh, basically, they get to the end of the month and they run out of money. They, they, they go out and earn but money seems to just disappear. They can never get ahead. They can never get caught up. So there's not, they're not flourishing. They're not prosperous. Now we do tend to have here, I think, a dual um, level of uh, prosperity. You've got the, the nobles who are wealthy, and then you've got everybody else who's kind of just making ends meet. And we saw that in Nehemiah where he had to deal with the, the wealthy who were enslaving the poor to make them pay off their loans. So you've got a, you don't have any middle class. You've got a really inequitable society going here. Um, so the wealthy are living in their panel houses. Everybody else is just scraping by. Um, now... Do you suppose that God is suggesting that their impoverished lives might be connected to their failure to build the temple? I think that's kind of what he's doing. <laughs> he said, think about this. Let's step back and look at the big picture. You know, he says, you're not doing my will. You're not flourishing. And you're not going to flourish. Um, so we can go on and look at verses 7 and 8. So here's where God tells them what he wants them to do. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. So again, we have this. Think about your ways. Go back and you know, look at the big picture. Um, Do your priorities, do your actions bring about the results that you really want? And they haven't. So God tells them what they need to do. Go to the mountains for wood, rebuild the temple. Now, he doesn't say to go ask Darius for permission. <laughs> this is God speaking. He says, you just go do it. You know, you've got authority from on high. Don't worry, I'll take care of Darius. So that may have been one of the other issues is that they were scared of the king. Um, and they didn't want to get back in trouble again. They were afraid of their neighbors. They were afraid of the king. And God just says, you do it. If you do my will, I'll take care of everything. 
Um, so they had to go to the mountains for wood. Um, again, pretty scarce around Jerusalem. Um, so they probably or possibly went all the way to Lebanon uh, to get it. You know, we hear about the cedars of Lebanon, you know. Let's go back to Ezra again. Chapter 3. So this is when they were first in land, and they're all getting all excited and ready to build the, the temple, getting their supplies together. Ezra chapter 3. Someone like to read verse 7 for us. And they gave money to the masons and carpenters. They gave food to the drink to the, of, and all the oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre, so that they would bring the cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa, as authorized by Cyrus and Persia. Okay. So here, the first time when they were getting ready to build, they brought cedar from, from Lebanon. Um, and... This made me start to think, and as you're reading through Haggai, did that cedar ever make it to Jerusalem? And if so, where did it end up? Maybe in their panel. It was, uh, <laughs> yeah. This was cedar. It's very possible that the cedar that was meant to go in God's houses, they ended up putting in their own houses. So it's not just that they neglected God, but they actually stole God's wood to put in their own houses. It doesn't say that here. But that would, to me, would be reason why God was so irritated with them. You know, this was his wood for his house, for his glory, and they put it on their walls. So that might be what happened. So, anyways, uh, we have this direct order from God to get moving now and to build the temple. And then God gives us some reasons for this. First, he says that I might be pleased with it, that God would be, take pleasure in this temple. When you go through the Old Testament, all these sacrifices, you know, it talks about a sweet savor that's acceptable to God or a sacrifice that's pleasing, well-pleasing to God. That's the same term. This is like a sacrifice of, of thanksgiving to God, and that pleases him. He's pleased with our obedience to him. He's pleased with the service to him. The other thing that's going to be pleasing is that he desires is a, a finite point on earth where he can, in a sense, focus his glory um, and emphasize his presence and be worshipped. If you go back and look at Solomon's prayer when he built a temple... He says, God, just remember when everyone prays toward this temple, please hear them. So there's a, uh, a focus on a place, a specific place where, where God's presence would dwell. Let's look at uh, Psalm 132. There were several of the references I looked at that referenced this. Psalm 132. I'm going to like to read verses 13 and 14. Psalm 132, 13 and 14. 
For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. Okay. So, you know, we've studied God's uh, attributes. God's everywhere present. You know, so, in a sense, this seems to contradict that. But God says, no, this is where I'm going to especially be present, in a sense. And uh, uh, that's where uh, you'll pray to. I want this. This is, this is my desire. So let's, let's go back and look at Second Chronicles chapter 7 also. Second Chronicles chapter 7. So I'd like to read verses 15 and 16 here. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Okay. God's name is his character, his presence. God's saying... I will be present in this place. You know, and I don't know how uh, an imminent, imminent, imminent God, <laughs> I don't know if I got the right word, can be more present in one place than another, but that's kind of what he says here. Uh, so God is pleased that his name will dwell, in, and he wants this temple built. Right now, there is no temple. Um, so he wants that place. Uh, now, while we're still in Second Chronicles, the next thing he also, his second reason would be um, that he might uh, be honored or glorified there. So, in Second Chronicles chapter 7, would someone like to read verses 1 through 3 for us? Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could, could no longer enter, could not enter the house of the Lord, because of the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And all the people of Israel saw the fire come down, and the glory of the Lord on the temple they bowed down with their faces to the ground and on the pavement, and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Okay, so his, God's glory filled the temple. This is his Shekinah glory, and they, everyone, the Jews worshipped. They bowed down and worshipped him there. So God wants to be glorified in this temple, a place where he can be glorified, and he can glorify himself. Um, looking at the surrounding nations, you have the pagans who worshipped false idols. They all built temples for their gods. So you had, you know, what what is it in Athens? You've got the, on the plateau the, is it the Acropolis. The Acropolis, right? Beautiful, huge building to uh, to worship Athena. Um, 
And throughout all Rome, you know, the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, they all had temples to worship their pagan gods mm -hmm. who were not gods. And what did God have? They had, they had a, there was a little stone altar, probably. They had built an altar. We assume it's still there. And then a 15-year-old footing for a, for a building. Um, this, this was an embarrassment. Let's, let's turn to... Athens, they had an altar too. Later in Athens, he had an altar. Yes. He had known God. That Paul didn't know about Right. Let's turn to Luke chapter 14. Luke 14. Now this is not an exact parallel, but it illustrates, I think, what's going on here, part of it. Uh, Luke chapter 14, and someone like to read verses 28 through 30. <clears throat> after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish all who see it begin to mock him saying this man began to build and was not able to finish okay so unfinished tower here what what do the neighboring pagans think about the unfinished temple here in this parable they mock the builder they mock him and ridicule him so here we have the pagans with their temples to their gods and the Jews with the most high God and all he's got is an empty footing and the, the pagans are just mocking him. So you can see you know, why God is, is so disappointed, I guess, in a way with, with the Jews at this time and why he's urging them and sends the prophets, two prophets, to get them to go back and build and and get the temple built. Um, I'm not aware of anywhere that, you know, the, the glory-filled Solomon's temple, I'm not aware of any statement that God's glory returned to this temple of Nehemiah, or Ezra and Nehemiah, or Herod's temple, but uh, I think in the future we, we read through the uh, book of Revelation where God will dwell in his temple, where he'll, there will not, not in the eternal state, but during the millennium, there will be a temple where God, where God will dwell. Okay, well, we need to. It's a good place to close. So, Joe, would you like to close for us, please? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way it speaks to us. We thank you for the way it's, it's continuous speaking to us. It was written thousands of years ago by different authors. So it was all under your direction, under your guidance. We just want to thank you that. It is still a living word. It's still living to us today. Pray that we'll be obedient to what you have for us to do, that we'll follow the callings you want us to do, that we'll glorify you in the things that we um, do about our walk, and that we'll bring glory to you in the things that we do also. Lord, just pray for this hour. Pray for the next hour to come. In your precious name, pray. Amen. Amen.